But 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. God, uh, this is a very short passage, but it's uh, very important for us. And I pray that, God, you'd give us eyes, as we just sang, to see, and that you give us hearts that want to do what we read on this page. Thank you, God, that you have been kind enough to send us your word, and even kinder to give us your Holy Spirit who helps us and uh, moves us to want to do your word. We thank you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You can, it's positive, yeah. Yep, you may be seated. Please stand. No, <laughs> kidding. My wife and I, the second year of our marriage, we went to, I'm sure many of you know, we went to uh, Russia to, uh, for one year to teach the Bible in public schools. They invited a group of American Christians to come to teach a curriculum called Christian Ethics and Morality. The objective was to teach the moral teachings of Christ to the teachers so they could help the students live morally because atheism destroyed the moral foundation in Russia, so they invited Christians to come over. Now, when we went, they told us as a team, we went with a team of six people. We were planted in a city, and we'd go to different public schools. And they said, be very careful how you do this, because really Russia, the country, doesn't mind you coming teaching classes, but they don't want you to proselytize. Proselytizing means they don't want you to try to win converts. A convert is somebody who has left their faith and taken yours and taken your lifestyle. So they said, be very, be very careful. And so we don't want you really trying to persuade through argument. We don't really want you to plant any churches. And most of all, we don't want any Americans baptizing Russians. But we do want you to teach Christian ethics and morality. Now, there's a problem with that. Because Christianity, by its nature, claims to be truth. And truth, by its nature, is claiming it's right. And you are wrong if you disagree with it. And so throughout the year, we would teach the Bible. People would raise their hand and they're saying, well, what, if you, what you're saying is true, then what I believe is not true. Is that true? And so I wasn't, we're really, they, they told us not to persuade, but we said, well, yeah, we believe we have the truth. And so over the course of the year, we were able to see many people abandon their atheism and adopt Christianity. We were able to see people wanting to come to our apartment to study the Bible more, to come Sundays, 
to join our little church. And we were able to see some people go to the, we went to the deep forest to get baptized, the people that believed the message. But we had Russians baptize Russians, not Americans baptize Russians. But we did see people become converts to Christianity because by its nature, Christianity claims to be truth. It persuades. It asks you to believe. And ultimately, it asks you to belong to this organization, this body called the church. Christianity is designed to convert. There's some belief system that, you know, it's all just about dialoguing. Let's have an interesting conversation. That's a big new word now. Let's have conversation. We need to have more conversation. But that means really doesn't what doesn't mean what they're trying to make it mean. Actually, if somebody says, we need to have a conversation, what they're saying is, I need to persuade you. Really, we're in this business of persuasion. And Christianity claims to be truth, and if it claims to be truth, and you, you have something that disagrees, either you convert or reject. It's, a, it's just the way it is. In this passage here in Peter, he's going to talk about conversion. What he's going to talk about is the life after you're converted. And so the title for this message is Conversion. What does that mean? Logos, the agent of conversion, which we're going to talk about, and then what love is not. It's going to tell us that we need to love each other deeply, but that's going to kind of illustrate what it's not so we know how to love. But let's first talk about conversion. We're going to talk first about conversion and what it means describe it a little bit, and then show you how we find that in this passage. So first of all, as I already said, conversion means simply to cause someone to change their belief, which affects your lifestyle. So it's a change. Converted means I no longer believe what I once used to believe. I now adopt something new. I'm different. I'm not who I used to be. The best illustration I can think of is uh, it, it comes from an old movie my sisters and I used to love to watch when we were little kids. I don't like to watch it anymore because I'm an adult and it kind of irritates me, but as a little kid, I loved this movie, and you'll understand it in a second. We'd put on our pajamas, we'd throw big pillows out, we'd watch it because it would usually be on TV about 7 o'clock until 10 o'clock at night. So one time my parents let us, let us stay up late, and this movie is about... This inventor named Caractacus Potts, and he had this old car that was a famous motor car, but it got into an accident, and so it burned up, and it was left in a heap, and that's the old motor car right there. You can't really see it too well, but that guy back there is Caractacus Potts, and he had two kids who loved playing on this old car, but they're going to take this old car to the junk heap and melt it down to use it for use it for some kind of steel extraction. So they wanted to destroy this car, and the kid said, No, Dad, they're going to destroy our car. So Caractacus Potts got some money, took this old car home, brought it into his garage, and closed the garage doors. And for, seemed to me, watching the movie like a kid, they showed how long it took. seemed like 17 years he's in this garage watching the show. It was probably two days. And he goes in, and he gets all of these different, he gets the steel casing around the fireplace and brings it in, gets all kind of lanterns from the house and brings it in his garage, 
the doors are closed, and behind the door, you hear tinkering going on. Tink, 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 tink. Tink, 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 tink. And you see the kids waiting, and it's like forever. And then he opens up the doors, and out comes chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Chitty, bang, bang. Pretty, chitty, bang, bang. I, pretty, chitty, I hate that song now, but I, love, I used to love that song. My sister and I would do the play downstairs. It's crazy. My sister always made me do those plays, hundreds of them. But Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is no longer this heap of metal. It can fly and float, and it's a beautiful machine. It's converted from a hunk of junk to a beautiful automobile. That's the idea of conversion. We had potential, but we were broken, lost in sin. We get taken by this inventor, creator, to be remolded, recast, and now we are something brand new. One other thing I'd say about Christian conversion is we only believe there's one person who does the converting, and that's Jesus. He is the way. He is the way, not a way. We believe he is the way, the only Savior of the world, and once he converts you, he wants your full allegiance and devotion. Some people want to present Jesus as a possibility, a great idea. We present him as the only possibility, the only great idea. I, I think that's why people don't like Christianity, because we do sound arrogant when we make statements of truth claims that we have the only truth, we have the only Savior. Sounds rather arrogant to a Muslim to a Hindu, to a Buddhist, to an atheist. But it's not arrogant in this sense. Arrogance is if what you're saying is not true or exaggerated. But we are saying when Jesus claims to be God and he made everybody and all of us live and move and have our being in him, that's not arrogant. That is what is. That's why it's not arrogant. But it sounds arrogant. And so in this section, Peter's going to talk about conversion, what it looks like, how we got there, and then what it looks like. And it's not going to be hard. He's actually, P Peter's interesting. When you study Peter, he's not, as, he's not as systematic as Paul is. He's more sporadic in his ideas, but they all, when you let them digest, they all are very clear. So I'm going to call this basic Petrine doctrine. And I use this because a lot of people say Petrine doctrine is the lineage of the popes all the way back to Peter, but I'm saying no basic Petrine doctrine is conversion. How to become a follower of Jesus. How to make him the only way, the only truth, and the only life. So what the Petrine doctrine does with conversion is he tells us the before life, which we studied a little bit last week. Look at starting in verse 17. He says, if you call on him as a father, this is 1 Peter 1, 17, if you call on him as a father and partially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, verse 18, that you were ransomed from the futile ways. So what he's going to say is, this is what you were like in your old condition. This is what you were like as that piece of junk or automobile. Last week we called it the land or the forest of ignorance, if you remember that. And this is saying the futile ways, verse 18, that you inherited from your forefathers. So those futile ways means, futile means they were empty. Futile meant they were, they were vain. They weren't, 
had nothing to offer. You were dead. That's what we were like in the old man. And then it continues, verse 17 says, well, in this condition, if you call on the Father, and then verse 21, who through him, through who? Well, him is verse 18 and 19, the one who died as your ransom, it's Christ, his precious blood. He is the lamb without blemish or spot who was known before the foundation of the world. So if in your futile ways, if you call on him, the one who died as a ransom, and in verse 21 says, you become a believer in God when you put your faith and hope in him. So really, the way this works is before conversion happens, you have to recognize your futility, you realize the cross is your only answer, and you place your faith in that. If that happens, you then enter the the white space in between verse 21 and 22, which I'm going to call conversion. Something happens to you. Something completely happens to you, and you become chitty, chitty, bang, bang. You become something brand new. That's conversion. And then verse 22 is going to explain what happens to you. 22 and 23, the new life. Verse 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to truth for sincere brotherly love, one each other earnestly from a pure heart, since, verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of Christ. So what this is saying, this word purified, see in verse 22, see where it says purified? Having purified your souls, that word purified is in the past tense, meaning you've been set apart. Having been set apart, having been made holy. And how, how did this happen? Because of verse 23. Because you've been born again. So you can look at it like this. This new, after faith came, what happened? Faith in the gospel, this word is an imperishable word, which means it, will, it is true and it will never stop being true. And it will be planted in you, and out of you will come a new life. You're born again. A new life is born again in you. And this new life is a holy life. It's a set-apart life. It's a purified life. Peter, actually, um, he describes the word as a seed that forms a new life within a person. Ephesians 1.13 Listen to what Ephesians 1.13 says. When you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and the gospel is verse 18, 19, and 20. Jesus died on that ransom hill. His blood was shed for you. That's the gospel. So Ephesians 1.13 says, When you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believe in him, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what gives you new life. You're born again. So conversion is literally inside of you is the new life that's been born of the Holy Spirit. How does this happen? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing is the word of God. So that's conversion. You go from futility to faith, and when faith enters you, you become a new being, a new creature, new life. So here's the second question. So if you are born again, if you are really born again, the problem with being born again to me, it's like the problem between verse 20 and 21. 
it's something radical happens, but I don't necessarily see it. Something radical happened to me after faith, but I don't necessarily see it right away. I look in the mirror, I look exactly like I did before I was saved. What happens? And that's what Peter's going to talk about. And what he's going to talk about is primarily how do you know if you have this new life? If I'm converted, what does that conversion look like? For Chitty Chitty Bang Bang's obvious. Shiny new car, could fly, could float. But how about me? What do I do? Do I do anything new? Anything different about me? In this section, there's going to be two indicators of new life. If you are truly converted, these two indicators should, should be, start becoming true of you. People should be able to see them. You should be able to see them. And that's what we're going to talk about. The first one we find in verse 22 let me read it. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is a tricky verse. This is a verse that there's a lot of different tenses. The question is, does purification come after obedience or does obedience come before purification? Or is it obedience the response of purification? Because it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. The idea is, because you've been made clean, there's a newness in you that wants to obey and wants to be part of this new community, brotherly love. Look at Colossians a second. I'll show you what I'm talking about. This is, this is a big discussion. Are we pure because we've obeyed or do we obey because we're pure? They're both true. Because when we're converted, new life is put into us that wants us to obey, which causes us to be pure. We call it sanctification. But listen to how Paul explains it in Colossians chapter 1. It's rather tricky, actually. Colossians 1 verse 29. He's explaining how he preaches to bring maturity to the church, and how he works to do that. In verse 29 of Colossians 1. For this I toil. He wants to bring everybody mature in Christ. So for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul is saying, I am working my tail off for the church, but he's working in me so I can work my tail off. So actually, his power is what's causing me to work my tail off. They work hand in hand. So this purification from obedience to the truth, is now I have been made new. Now that this new spirit's in me, I want to do the truth. I will do the truth if I really believe I'm made new. So if we go back, then what, let's go to really the, the, the main idea here. What is one indicator from verse 22 that you really are made new? That you have this new life. You have been converted. The end of verse 22, 1 Peter 1.22. Here's the first indicator. You will, and actually this word is in the imperative, you should or you must, love one another earnestly from a pure heart.
if all of the past work is actually true, I've been converted, the natural result is that you will love each other earnestly from the heart in the present. You will love people. The NIV calls it love each other deeply from the heart. So I'm going to call this deep love, or you will love deep. The Greek word earnestly actually in other, in other versions means to be fervent, hot. So if we stop on this a second, this whole idea of loving deeply, what does it look like? To me, the idea of loving deeply means it's a love that reaches all the way down to the bottom of what I have so I can bring up everything so I can give it to others. My wife and also my husband and also my brother in the church or my sister in the church or my family. It's I start loving people deeply. It's a love that reaches down. Think of it like this. I like to think of things in the opposite and it helps clarify it. Deep love is not shallow. Shallow love stops at the first sign of difficulty. Deep love has abundance, so much abundance that it will cover a multitude of sins. Do you realize human love, when somebody offends me, I write them off. I'm done. I have little tolerance for people. I hear this all the time, even in the church. I'm the, and, and we get kind of proud of it. I'm the kind of person, if you wrong me, I will never forget it. That's not deep love. That's shallow. That's easy. As if I'm, as if I'm very strong because I can judge so quickly. Wow, aren't you a strong person? Lo- That's not love. 70 times 7? Earnest love, so if we use the, the uh, ESV, it says love is earnest. The opposite of earnest is apathetic. I'm not apathetic. I actually care about people. It joins in with others and their joys and their sorrows. Fervent love, if that's the word. Fervent love means it's not cold and dead and unresponsive. In fact, if it's hot, it's heat spreads. Heat makes cold things alive. Heat is creative. It's not needing other people to give me something. I give to them. I bring the cold warmth. As the Song of Solomon says, many waters cannot quench this kind of love. It flashes our fire, the very flame of the Lord. So the idea is that it's a flaming. God, God gives me a love that flames. And waters won't stop it because it's inside of me. It's from him. So the question is, really ask you, when you think about, think about people in your house. Do you love deep or are you quick to get angry? To help a little bit more with this love, I, the chapter 2, verse 1, it is attached to verse 22. So, so you could say verse 1 of chapter 2 is, is some more elaboration on what love is. And often in 1 Corinthians 13, we have love is patient, love is kind, love keeps no record of wrongs. It gives us the positive side. This gives us the negative side. This gives us what love is not. 
So these qualities, if you say you love somebody, you shouldn't have these qualities in verse 1. Let's just kind of think we need to define them and just think on them. It says, this kind of love, uh, let me read the verse, and so put away all malice. So love is not malicious. Love is not malicious. Malice is the desire to inflict injury, harm, or to see somebody else suffer. We like it when somebody else suffers. Somebody who's our enemy, I like it when they lose. I enjoy it. That's malice. And malice is either an impulse or deep-seated meanness, is what one writer says. It's like the spite of having that lifelong enemy that I just will never forgive. You want to hurt somebody. That's what malice is. You want to see their, you want to see them hurt. One writer calls malice, I love this phrase, congealed anger. It sits there in your belly and it colors the way you see everybody else. Malice is how, here, I'll just give you a perfect image of what malice is. If you've ever watched The View and have somebody say, what do you think of Donald Trump? You'll see malice across their face. It's weird. I'm not making a political statement, but I can say three of those ladies, if you say Donald Trump, instantly mal their, their lips curl. I want him to hurt. Some of you, if I say President Obama, your lips curl. Your eyes go like that. You want him to hurt. That's malice. Malice is when a, a spouse has lost all respect for their partner and all they have left is the rolling of the eyes. Oh, here he goes. There he goes again. That's malice. Malice is when you've come down with a verdict on others based on race, gender, age, looks without really knowing them. Do you know a person really just by how they look on the outside? Next word is deceit. Love does not is not deceitful, does not deceive. Deceit conceals or distorts the truth for the purpose of misleading. You're just duplicitous. You say one thing, but you mean something else. Fraud, cheat, purposeful lying. The question is, why do we lie to each other? Isn't lying the language of the devil? And then it says, love does not have hypocrisy. It's not hypocritical. What is hypocrisy? A pretense of being virtuous. I'm not virtuous, but I want to act like I am. I'm really not good, but I want to show that I am. It's also a pretense of moral, religious beliefs, principles, but I really don't possess them on the inside. I act like I have them, but it, they're not really there. It's a public display of goodness, but a private um, emptiness. And then it says envy. Your love isn't envious. Envy is pain. It's, it's a pain or resentful awareness that somebody else is enjoying the advantage that I am not enjoying, and I want to have that same advantage. And there's real pain. So you see some, somebody as something you want, and it makes you hurt on the inside. And covet. That's envy. Love doesn't do that. And love also doesn't slander. It's not slanderous. Slander is oral defamation in which someone tells one or more persons an untruth about another for the purpose of harm, harm to their reputation or their position. If 
you look at this list, the reason why I have envy green, because often envy is the spark that lights all the rest of them on fire. I want something someone else has, so in order to get that something, I will do everything on the list. I will slander the person. I will lie. I will act like I'm better and I deserve it. I will, I will wish ill upon them because they have something I want. There's a story in 1 Kings 3 which illustrates this perfectly. These two ladies, they were servants. They both had babies. Nobody else was in the house. One of the ladies, they went to bed at night. One of the ladies fell asleep with her child next to her side. She suffocated at night. They woke up. One baby was alive. One was dead. Well, actually what happened was, while they were still sleeping, the lady whose child died saw that the child died, so she took her dead baby and changed it with the other person's live baby, and they woke up. This person said, that's not my baby. She stole my baby. So they went to King Solomon. King Solomon said, whose baby is it? And this lady, who really wasn't the true mother, said, it's my baby. The true mother said, no, it's my baby. So King Solomon said, bring me the baby and cut the baby in half, and we'll give each lady one half of the baby. The true mother said, no, 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 let the, let the baby live. The false mother said, yeah, cut the baby in half. That's envy. Envy is willing to see malice, willing to lie, willing to slander because I can't have what they have. So I'm willing. I'm mad. Deep love will stop the very first sign of envy in my heart. It will stop it. Stop it in its tracks. And you know what place is no place for envy? The church. We should never envy how somebody in our church dresses, where they live, what kind of car they drive, if they get to lead or teach a class, they get to preach, or who wins the Iwana Grand Prix. We really are converted. If we really are born again, if we really are changed on the inside, I mean really changed like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, we will love deeply. Second thing, we find it in verse 2, we will, you will if you are converted, you will desire laga, the lagos, the word, both Christ as the word, but his written accounts that he has given us. That's what lagos means, the word. Listen to verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, meaning if you've tasted and you know that God is who he is, that he's true, you will want more of what has given you sight, which is his word. Like a newborn baby, you will want God's word. This isn't necessarily in verse 2 saying you are a newborn baby. What it's, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor basically comparing you, or it's a simile, saying you will be like a baby. A hungry baby. You'll want food. You, I want more, more, more of this because it's given me life. I want more of what's given me life. Verse 23, we already said how the word is the, is the really the origin of my new life. Verse 23, since you've been born again, how? Not a perishable seed. That means human effort, but of imperishable. What do you... What's the imperishable? The living and abiding word of God. So this word has given me new life, and it's imperishable. It means Jesus said it, it will never fade away. 
So this section says a lot. Imperishable, verse 23, we just read 24 and 25. It's comparing to my human side, my my human side, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord that has given me a new kind of life, the word of the Lord, it remains forever. And the results in my life will remain forever. What is produced out of the word, the promises, and then I follow them by faith, will last forever. And it also says this word is the good news that was preached to you. So it's imperishable. It's good, meaning it's going to bless you. There's a crazy undercurrent, both in the church and outside, that the Bible's a dangerous book. In fact, it's the source of many of our problems makes us judgmental towards others. It divides. It makes people feel bad about their life choices. The truth is, the Bible is written by God for our good, or God breathed on human authors for our good. Second Timothy says it's profitable. We're rebuking correction, training in righteousness, that a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I went to the Moody Founders Week. Uh, two weeks ago, and I was watching the first sermon. And this guy's named Pastor Meeks, and he's talking about his dad. He's an African-American pastor. But he said, every time my father brought home a, something new from the store, to bring home a refrigerator, he took out the box, but inside that box, there's a little white book. Before my dad turned on the refrigerator, he'd read through that little white book. And then he brought home a microwave. And in that microwave box was a little white book. And he read through that little white book. And he brought home a blender, and it had a little white book, and he read through that little white book. And I said, Dad, why do you keep reading that little white book? He said, Son, if a man goes through all the trouble to make an incredible appliance or machine, I want to read what he wrote about it, because if he's smart enough to make it, he's smart enough to tell me how to use it. If he's smart enough to make it, he's smart enough to tell me how to use it. He said, in the same way, don't you think God's a little bit smarter than a man who can make a refrigerator and he gave you a book? Don't you think he knows how you can live? It's good for us. And it's perfect. Psalm 19 says it's, it's perfect. It's perfect in the sense it grows us to make us more like him. That's why his newborn baby, I should want this spiritual milk so I can grow up into salvation, that's being conformed in the image of Christ. So you could ask it like this. Here's how we can ask it. If the word of God is the source that gave birth to the imperishable life, the eternal life, the life that will last forever, if it is good and profitable and perfect, why do we stop living off of it? Seriously, if it is a fact that people do research that most Christians do not have a regular practice of feeding off the Word. You could say we have bad spiritual nutrition. Why? And singing a song from a Christian radio is not enough. It's just like, it's like eating, all you're eating is strawberry shortcake all the time. You need some meat. I read something fascinating this past week. I want you to listen. This is fascinating. Imagine that 100 people are prescribed a drug. Consider what happens next, according to research. One-third of them won't fill their prescription. 
half of the remaining 67 will fill it but won't take the medication correctly. They'll miss doses. They'll quit taking it early. They might not even take it at all. Physicians, pharmacists, and psychologists alike are all befuddled. Why won't sick people take their medication? What's wrong with them, they wonder. Don't they want to get better? One psychologist believes people don't take their pills because they don't feel like they deserve to be well. They don't take their pills because they like to punish themselves. They hate themselves, is what one psychologist says. I don't, personally, I don't buy that explanation. I think it's just the opposite. What I find in Scripture is that we think too highly of ourselves. And I think we don't take the pills because we don't actually believe we need them. We will be better off without them. We can make it on our own willpower and get better. I think there's also some who are just plain lazy. That's why they don't take the pills. That's why they don't read the Word of God. And I think the same reality of I don't need it is behind our lack of desire for this Word. Why won't people who are born again continue to drink from the well that brought them life? Because we don't think we really need it. And we make excuses. I've read it before. It doesn't do much for me. It's just a book. It's just a book. You know, first of all, do you believe that this is God's book, that he really did breathe it? It says it's like milk, good milk, that makes us better. If I really believe that, if I really believe what this word says, I will do it. It's called faith. If the doctor tells me I have cancer or dementia and to stay in good health, I need to keep taking my pills, I would be a fool to look at my medication and say, oh, I've already taken a few pills before. I know how to do that. Or every time I take the pill, I don't feel anything right away. It's just a tiny capsule. What can it possibly do for me? Go off your meds and you will see. Why do you think so many Christians are shallow at love? towards others, or get angry easy and lie and slander and have malice. They haven't been taking their pills. We have been converted. That's God's whole intention, is to form us into the likeness of his son, because the end goal of conversion is what we read in verse 5 through 9. Here's, the, here's why we're converted. You yourselves... Well, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen precious. So Jesus is the living stone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for in Scripture, behold, I'm laying a stone, and we're building on this stone. He's taking stones, converting these stones, so he can build an edifice on top of the main stone. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. But you are a chosen race, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you could say it like this. You have been converted. Well, a stone, go ahead and hit it. I forget what I wrote. For a stone to be usable... For a stone to be usable, to be able to be built up on the main stone, to build a structure, needs to be converted, needs to be changed. The question is, are you? 
Do you have love, deep love? And do you read his word? Because if new light's in you, let's pray.